and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, recovered family members share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics and addicts through interviews and sharing their stories. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. I mean, I get to introduce and interview our speakers for today. One of you, one of them, you all know, Lisa Cronkey. It is an honor to be able to interview you. I'm nervous because I admire this woman so much. Um, not only as a recovered alcoholic and a leader in the nonprofit and business world, but also as a mother. Her love for alcoholic women is contagious. And y'all get that for like, you get to see that like this much. I get to see it like all the time. Um, and then I also get to see the love that she has for her kids, which is equally contagious. Drew, I wish I had more I could say about you. But... Uh, <laughs> But given who your parents are, I mean, I just assume you're also amazing too. So I'm gonna let you guys, I'm gonna let you guys come on up here and sit where you want to sit. I'm gonna need tissues. You guys know that. All right. First of all, you wanna introduce yourself? I'm Drew Crocky, and I am uh, Lisa's son. Hi Drew. Hi Drew. Hi, Drew. Hi, Drew. Um, and I'm Lisa Cronkey and I'm a recovered alcoholic and my sobriety date is, I can't look at you guys, I'm like, I'm going to start crying already. Um, June 2nd of 07. Alright, and we're just going to get right into it. Are you guys okay with that? Sure. Alright, my first question is, what was it like growing up with an alcoholic mother? So there really wasn't anything that I totally noticed until about 6th or 7th grade. I didn't know that she was drunk per se, but I knew that when she came home on the weekends and some of the weeknights and stuff that she was just different. She wasn't the same person that I woke up and, and saw in the mornings and afternoons and picking me up from school and everything. I could essentially tell when she was different when she would have her makeup running down her face and it would be all messed up and she did not look very well to me. Um, the, other, the other giveaway was when she would um, come crawl in my bed, sleep with me um, some random nights. And, but other than that, it really didn't hit until sixth or seventh grade. And then I started to notice um, that it was really bad because she started becoming that different person in the mornings, in the afternoons, and at night, almost 24 seven. And there were a couple of things that like, I guess I was doing that I didn't really realize that were bad. like. Um, we were talking about this the other day. She got a couple DUIs, and um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that she had me do so that we could drive to school was blow into that little nozzle <laughs> that they had set up in her car, um, like just random mornings or whatever, when she had been drinking so much the night before that she couldn't blow into it to get the car started to go to school. So there were things like that that I didn't really, I guess, realize were different or abnormal that um, looking back on it now, it's like, well, dang, well, what the heck? <laughs> um, but then in seventh and eighth grade, I started to like actually connect the dots and realize, okay, she's drinking a ton. She's 
not able to stop. She had tried a bunch of medicines and you know, it, it was really unfortunate because looking back on it for, from my perspective, it was super selfish of me because the only thing I thought about was how it affected me and my life and my friends and um, how I would have to take care of her when dad was out of town, how I would have to take care of her when they were arguing, how I would have to take care of her when she couldn't take care of herself. And the only thing I was worried about was me. And it's a, a big, big regret of mine for sure. But the other thing too, I mean, looking back on it, I wouldn't probably change anything just because it's been such a great lesson for, for me and for my family and for, for everybody around her. I mean, look at all of you guys. I mean, it's been amazing what she's been able to do with it. And, um, <laughs> well, thank you. I got to hear some more stories about Lisa's alcoholism. That's kind of nice. There's a, lot. Uh, There's a lot. All right. So, Lisa, I guess my question to you is, because we kind of got a little bit of what your drinking looked like from Drew. When did you start realizing that your alcoholism was affecting your children, and how did it feel trying to stop for them but not being able to? So one of the interesting things about my story is that, well, Dave would probably disagree with this, and I always say this, and you guys have heard me say this, but I drank normally for a while. I didn't drink abnormally from day one. My sponsor did, so I know what that story looks like, and that's not my story. But I remember moments, we had this rental house because we were redoing or building this other house, and I remember being in this house, and, and I remember that was the first time that I realized, and I couldn't tell anybody, that I couldn't stop drinking. And I started drinking, you know how we get to the point where I started drinking stuff that I would never drink like gin, like I'm allergic to gin. And I'm like, I wasn't particular. And I would wake up the next morning and I would try to wake up and get the kids out of bed, appearing normal. And then I would, after I would take them to school, I would come back and go back to bed. And I remember those moments where I didn't care, I, I just wanted to give them some Eggos and throw some syrup on there, just to get them to school. I just wanted them to go to school so I could be alone, I could go back to what I was doing, and nobody would interrupt me. And I still did the carpool mom, I mean, gosh, you guys, I drove carpool. I did the taking the boys to sports and baseball, because of course they were all into sports, and baseball's four, you know, oh my God, four practices a week, if you've ever played baseball, boys, it's painful. And so I did all those things, but I only did it because I had to. I wasn't enjoying it. I didn't want, it's not that I didn't want to be a mom. I loved my children. It's just that at that point, alcohol was more important than my kids. And I started realizing that when Drew, it was about eighth grade, ninth grade, and I noticed that the kids were pulling away from me. And it's not that I didn't care. I just wanted that more than I wanted to be a mom. And that's so hard to say. My kids know it all now. But that's the, the point where, to answer your question, is that when alcohol became more important than me being a mother. That was so beautiful. Can you, and this is a question for, for Lisa again, can you talk about feeling like you were a, a bad mom and how you learned that you were not. Well, it's a two-parter. <laughs> of course I felt like a bad mom. I mean, who drives carpool like that? I remember going, coming home from a baseball game. I had gone out to the parking lot and smoked a cigarette. 
bodies apart. And another kid saw me. I walked out and this friend of ours was there. And I didn't care. Like I was so emboldened and so cocky that I thought, of course I can smoke a cigarette. I mean, you think about it, like that's how our brain thinks. Like when you, you're buzzed and you're like, I don't care. And I remember driving home with them that particular time when I had alcohol in the car. And I barely remember driving home. And that's when I thought, who does this? And the only solution I knew was to go right back into oblivion. And that was my solution. I think part two of how that was removed is that's part two. So we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're still in the drunk logs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's hope, I just want people to know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. first of all, did you ever blame yourself for your mom's alcoholism? Back to being uh, the selfish kid I was, I didn't blame anybody but her and my dad for allowing it to happen, which is really unfortunate because, um, you know, again, I was so worried about myself and how it was affecting me, I didn't even try to help in any way. I was just totally withdrawn and the more I tried to help, the less it worked. So I thought, you know, maybe if I don't do anything, it'll solve itself. You know, I, I just, I, I couldn't get over the fact that she was doing this thing that was such an easy choice to just stop. I mean, it was just, it's, in my mind, it was that simple because I didn't fully understand it. And, you know, my solution was to just withdraw and, and let it figure itself out. I, I didn't know what else to do because I, I talked to her about it once and I, Honestly, I think she was drunk when I talked to her about it. She was, she was pissed. She was super angry with me. She's like, I can stop whenever I want. And my dad like grabbed my shoulder and pulled me away and was like, just, we're sick, we're, fix, we're fixing it, we're figuring it out. Just, you know, let it, let it happen, let it ride. And so that's, that's what I did. Now, did you watch your mom attempt to get sober? I watched her attempt to get sober uh, a few times. The first time she tried to do it was with like a bunch of medicine. I'm not even sure what you were taking, but it was um, a lot. <laughs> she was taking like 10 to 12 pills a day or something like that. And um, it made her even weirder because it was like, <laughs> it, like, it like changed her personality to like, like there was sober mom, then there was drunk mom, then there was like this third mom now who was like, <laughs> totally whacked out on whatever she was on and oh my God. Um, it was bad. I was like man I, I don't know now I have three different leases to deal with I don't know I'm gonna have to like pick and choose who I say certain things to and all this stuff um, but then I, I maybe I'm skipping ahead but then there was the night that she she almost died had to go to the hospital um, and then ended up going to rehab and at that point I was like if she can't get sober after this like I don't think she, it'll ever happen for her so it was, there were a couple of times, for sure. Now, I think that's a good transition to get into leading up to part two. What happened with that night, Lisa? So we were at a friend's house um, out of town, and I had been sober for like three days. And I, I remember thinking, I told him I was an alcoholic. I had to drink in three days. <laughs> it only been like eight years, you know. Um, and I vividly remember this, you guys. It's the weirdest thing. Like, we don't forget. Walking by this pantry where my friend Allison had kept all of her great goods. And I remember picking up a, one of those big giant bottles and put it in the closet. 
I knew I was going to come back to it. And I was so happy. <laughs> I probably had the best dinner I've ever had that night. <laughs> so I knew what was coming. And I went in that closet, you guys, and I, I drank almost the entire bottle except for about this much. Just poured it down my throat. And my kids found me. Drew found me. And Allison found me. They didn't believe it. Just gone. I was out. I got to the hospital. Uh, my and this was like four or five hours later. My blood alcohol level was 0.38. I mean, blood was saturated. I'd been drinking for years, and so I knew at that moment when I woke up the next morning, my family was surrounding me, and Allison said, um, "Day was there. You're going away. We can't do this anymore. I just didn't. Want, I didn't want to go." Day. My husband was like, you have to go, because you can't come home. And uh, off I went. I spent the first four or five days trying to figure out how I was going to hide out when I got home. <laughs> but then something happened to me on the fourth day that changed my life. And you guys know that whole story, because I say it almost every time I talk. That's my side of it. How is that like finding your mom that way? I'll compare it to... Um... When I was in college, there, there were so many nights where I'd come home and find my roommates drunk and just being dumb and idiots and, or whatever. And, you know, that was all good. It was all funny. It was, you know, ha, 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 you're drunk. But seeing her that way and comparing it to that was just so sad because it wasn't like a funny drunk. She was just, she was like a shell of herself. I mean, she couldn't pick up her arm to move. She was just like a, a rag doll at that point. And I remember like, like she was just so messed up. She was sitting on the stairs for some reason, like blabbering to herself. And I remember like stepping over her and she like grabbed my um, leg and I remember smacking it away because I was so mad at her, just not wanting to deal with it, just trying to have fun with my friends, being at this you know lake house with um, our family and everything. And oh, here's just another night that we've got to deal with Lisa being drunk out of her mind again, just out of control, embarrassing me and all this stuff. And again, I was just thinking about myself and not her. And the next morning when Allison came and told me that essentially mom was going away, I said, good, she needs to go. Because I was so done at that point. It had been two years at least of her being drunk 24 seven. I could tell when she was drunk, when she was driving a couple times, I could tell that it was just out of control at that point. And then um, I remember she got mad at me because I didn't want to go say bye to her before she left. I was so done. I was like, just get her out of my life at this point. I, I cannot deal with it anymore. I'm just, I want to, you know, live a normal life essentially. Because <laughs> I, I just could not do it anymore. And finally I came over and said goodbye to her. And, you know, and no uncertain terms was I nice about it. I was pretty rude about it. I just said, Good, I'll see you when you get back. Good luck. Are you a loved one of an alcoholic? Our family support group serves as a community for friends, loved ones, and family members of alcoholics to learn about alcoholism, understand how to help an alcoholic, and experience an improved quality of life, regardless of the alcoholic's recovery. We have weekly support meetings that meet virtually and in person, as well as a monthly speaker meeting. To find out more about our family support group, visit magdalenhouse.org family.
to the day that changed your life um, because that's also the day that you realize that you weren't a bad mom, right? And I would love for the women to hear that. But also, I, I would like to know, like, how did it feel, like, seeing that your children, or at least your son, didn't even want to say goodbye to you? I thought it was irreparable. I thought that it was never going to be the same. I remember so much joy with our children. I watch videos now. Like, Dave, my husband, just turned 60, so I got all the DVDs out and made this video for our family, right? And I remember watching some of it with, our, with my kids and seeing so much joy in all those younger years. And it was gone. It was gone. I didn't have family. I didn't have, I had family. I didn't have what I thought was going to be my family. I had this expectation. And I thought it was never going to be the same again. And to some extent, it wasn't. I thought I had failed as a mother, as a wife, as a person. And that it would never be the same again. I would be, for the rest of my life, trying to figure out how I was going to live with this. And I'll tell you what, I remember going to rehab thinking I'd rather be drunk, I'd rather be dead, than try to go back to AA again and, and just be miserable. And that's what I was thinking. Can you tell us what happened on the fourth day? Yeah. If you've heard me talk five minutes, you know. On the fourth day, I went to, well, first of all, I was humiliated in front of everybody on the third day. <laughs> and if you know this man, I was pissed because I was arrogant. And he made fun of me in front of 90 people. And I just, I remember walking into his office and going, don't ever talk to me that way again in front of all those people. I pay your salary. <laughs> I mean, it was a nice rehab, right? Um, only the best for the area, you know. Oh, God. And um, he looked at me and he said, why don't you be in my class at 8.30 the next morning and you might learn something. That was, The day before was at 4.30 on a Monday afternoon, I think, or Sunday afternoon. Monday morning I was front and center because I'm like the good student. You know, I'll show you. He opened up this big book and he knew exactly what he was doing because he knew I had no idea what the disease of alcoholism looked like. And he broke down step one in five minutes. He talked about the allergy. He talked about the body. He talked about the physical craving. He talked about the mental illness, the mental obsession that tells me I don't have a craving. He talked about that this is a mental illness, that alcohol is not my problem. He did all of that in five minutes. And I just remember looking up at him and like I was the only person in the room was just me and him and thinking, I'm just an alcoholic. <laughs> All these years, I thought it was a horrible person. Not that I didn't do horrible things, but there's a difference between shame and guilt. And I didn't understand that at the time. And that moment changed my life forever. So, if you know anything about Lisa's story, or if you've heard the family afterward with uh, Dave and Lisa, um, if you have not, you should check them out on the podcast. Um, <laughs> nice, they, nice plug. They talk about um, whenever Lisa gets out of treatment, she was like, woo, like gung-ho, like big book, yeah, you know, like ready to save all the alcoholics of the world. And she was gone a lot. And so I would just like to hear from Drew's perspective, like how was it, you know, getting your mom back from treatment, and then off she has to go again. So it wasn't anything I wasn't used to, because 
like I said, I mean, she had come home and she was already drunk. So at that point in my mind, she was basically gone already. I mean, she wasn't there mentally or, or anywhere near to her normal self. So for her to not be there physically was not, it was almost the same. I mean, it was like, you know, mom's not here. You know, I don't know what she's doing, but uh, must be something good. Uh, but at least she's not drunk crawling in my room or, you know, scratching my arm or doing some crazy drunk person thing. So, um, <laughs> you know, it was, um, it was tough. There was a, a ton of resentment. I mean, when she got back, she was gonna have to prove it to everybody that she was able to stay sober and keep her word. And, you know, it was like the fourth or fifth time that she had promised us that she would get sober. So, you know, she's gonna have to prove it to everybody. And, and obviously she did, so. First of all, did you have guilt from being gone? And then secondly, Drew mentioned having a lot of resentment. How did you, how did you deal with that as well? What was the first question? I'm sorry. I was getting Did you have guilt for having oh, to be gone so oh, much? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I had a ton of guilt. Um, Dave and I, our relationship, we were in a horrible place. So I was, he was probably glad I was gone, and I was probably glad I was gone. I mean, we were about to, get, we were about to separate. So did I have guilt? I had guilt about leaving my kids, for sure. I had the sponsor that didn't give me a choice. I had several sponsors before this one. But with this one, though, I'd remain sober. This is about Drew and not Dave, but there was several nights where Dave would just, like, you have, now you have this new obsession, and you're still gone. And I don't understand. And Drew would have to watch the kids when Dave was out of town, so Drew became a babysitter. I mean, poor Drew, couldn't have his friends over for probably four or five years, and now he's babysitting his brothers all the time so mom can go out. Yeah, it was a lot of guilt. What would you say to the women who are new in their recovery who are also having guilt from having to be gone to go to meetings and meet with sponsors and carrying the message and all that? What would you when I focused on helping other alcoholics, God took care of that. When I focused on helping other alcoholics, God took care of my relationship. Was it in my time? No. It was not on my time. But what I did was I focused on helping as many alcoholics as I could because that's what my sponsor told me to do and that's what I promised God I would do. And I had to have faith. It's a leap of faith to walk through fear thinking that you're never going to get your family back. And you just have to put all the faith in the action that you're taking. And that's what I did. So you mentioned that she had to prove that she was going to be able to stay sober. When was it that you started to trust your mom again? That is a tough one because immediately when she got back from rehab, she basically was gone, so there wasn't really much one-on-one -on -one time between me and her. And then at that point, her and my dad's relationships basically started to dissolve because they were, when she was there, they were fighting constantly. I mean, the family dinners, when I talk about awkward, I mean, they were like, they were some of the most awkward, silent family dinners that you can imagine for the first like couple of months when she was there. There was just like, the only connection, and I presented my dad a lot for this too, because he, in my mind, allowed it to happen, and then was basically punishing her when she got back, and they were constantly fighting, and he would never tell me what they were fighting about, but essentially I became, like my mom said, responsible for Ben, Matt, and Jake when she would be gone, or dad would be gone, and they were fighting, and it took a long time. It took a long time. I think after um, they ended up getting divorced that I finally had a little more one-on-one -on -one time with with her and 
um, I got to meet some of the people that she was helping. And I can't remember when that was exactly, but at that point I realized that she was having a huge impact on the people around her and um, the community and, and other families. At that point I knew, like it was probably a year or two into it, I, at that point I knew that she was really taking it seriously, that she wasn't just messing around, that um, this was gonna be her life and she wasn't asking me to blow into the thing in the car to go to school, so that helped a lot. And, um, it was yeah. just, it was a, it was a really, really long process. Um, but like she said, it, I wish it would have happened sooner, but again, there was just so much distance between me and her that um, it took a long time to make up that ground. And All right, I have a question. Did you know what you were doing when you were blowing into that thing? <laughs> uh, Kind of. There were a couple times. <laughs> the only reason I did is because I, there were a couple times where I said I didn't want to do it, and she got really mad, and she was like, "Drew, we can't go anywhere unless you do that." And I'm like, I'm "Like, why not, Mom?" She's like, "Because there's just this new feature and these new cars, are coming out, and you're gonna have to do it this way." I'm like, "Well, why can't you do it, Mom?" She's like, "Because you have to be 18 years or younger." And I'm like, "I'm like, are you sure about that?" She's like, yes, oh, just do it. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. That's awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, you have a question? My question is, I have a son probably the same age as you. I have no family history of alcoholism apart from me. Um, and I'm afraid that I'm giving them alcoholism. Is, is that a genetic, you know, is it genetic? Is that... I think Lisa has a good way to answer this question, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not afraid of giving my, my children alcoholism. <laughs> I'm not, because what I have to do is, it is not a bad thing, but it's almost like any disease. If I have diabetes or cancer, I can't live my life in fear. And what I have to do is I have to present alcoholism as an asset. I have to present alcoholism to my family as the best thing that's ever happened to me and that's ever happened to my family. And as long as I'm doing that, our youngest presented as a drug addict about four years ago. I didn't take the weight of that. That's not my fault. What I can do for him is show him the solution. Do I worry about it? I really don't. Margaret, I love being an alcoholic. I love it because I get to help people. I get to help women and my children get to see that. They're not embarrassed I'm an alcoholic. They were embarrassed I was drinking. They love me now. So why wouldn't that be an asset to our family? I'm not worried about it at all. So <laughs> imagine, I mean, imagine if you, Good God. Margaret, imagine if you, if you weren't an alcoholic and you didn't understand what was going on with him, you wouldn't know how to help him. But you do now because you've been through yourself. And that to me is the asset that she was talking about. I mean, she she really, if, if that were to happen like it did happen to my youngest brother, um, she knew exactly what to do. And it wasn't that big of a deal because she knew what he was going through. If it was any other family, it would have been like the worst thing in the entire world. But we were well equipped for it. and. It was just, you know, oh great, now Jake gets to go to all the meetings with mom. It's awesome. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah.
Oh my god. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> that was a mic drop moment. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, I would love um, to talk about the stigma surrounding alcoholism and especially mothers. And just to hear your thoughts on that, Lisa. Well, uh, I have a big thought on that. Uh, I think that the stigma of alcoholism is perpetuated by alcoholics. I do. Because if we walked around talking about how we get to change lives, if we walked around talking about alcoholism as an asset and not as a curse, then why wouldn't everybody understand? We wouldn't be so anonymous. I am not Lisa Kay. I am Lisa Cronkey. I'm not embarrassed about it. So why do we walk around with our heads down at the floor going, I'm embarrassed to be an alcoholic. I'm scared to be an alcoholic. When if you're out there helping women, helping families, it's the best part of my day. And I love my children. But there is nothing better than watching a woman's eyes come back to life. And if we could all talk about that, rather than the drunk logs, rather than trying to make alcoholism funny, entertaining, if we could talk about truly life and death and how we get to be a part of that, I really do believe that we could be, we could be the, the benefactor, we could be the push that alcoholism needs to get out there to talk about it. We could be the catalyst for that. Now, would it end? No, because behavior is behavior, and we did a lot of bad stuff. There's nothing better than an alcoholic getting up and saying, I'm an alcoholic, and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And if more people could do that, I think we could definitely make a dip in the stigma that is perpetuated by us being embarrassed that we're alcoholics. I'm not embarrassed. My family's not embarrassed anymore either. It is such a gift, isn't it? It is. Uh, anyway, when I assume at one point you were embarrassed that your mom was <laughs> When did that go away for you? There was a, a time where the girls' basketball team in high school got in trouble for drinking on the school bus on the way home from a game or something like that. And um, I don't know how it happened, but the first thing they did was actually reach out to mom to come speak to the team. And I remember coming and sitting in that meeting and just watching her talk. And um, I think before that, I would have been like super embarrassed, like, Mom, like, why are you scolding these women on, on how to drink or not drink and all this stuff? But watching her, like, I'm so glad I got to sit there and, and watch her talk about it because it wasn't like she was chastising them or, or making them feel bad. She was honestly just giving them her perspective and how it impacts the people around them um, when they choose to do crazy things like that and you know how it can really change their lives for the worse if they continue to go down that path and um, again she just told it in a way that was friendly and courteous and not harmful or, or scolding in any way she was really just trying to give them her perspective and her view of things and it was really cool so. and how does it feel knowing or knowing that you can also help others with your own experience and how do you do that you know for people who don't have alcoholics in their family or alcoholism in their family or i guess in their immediate family but they only can see it from 
I guess, outside perspective, and then it happens within their family. It's really cool to just tell them like that it's not gonna be the end of the world, that it, a lot of this stuff is so heavy for so many people. It's been going on for years, and just knowing that like, you know, if you really put the work in, you can, you can get sober, you can, you can change your life, and that it's really not the worst thing in the world. It can actually be like, you know, my mom said a million times, the best thing that's ever happened, and it really is, it's really true. I, you know, I've had a couple of friends who have all dealt with issues like that. I've had friends of um, friends that have dealt with issues like that. I've had, you know, a bunch of uh, my friends' moms who have gone to my mom to get help and stuff. And you know, as men, it's it's tough to talk about some of that hard stuff sometimes. But you know, I've done it a couple of times, and it's been really really cool to see. Um, just you know like almost the same story that I had where they had all this distrust and then through a bunch of work and, and time, the trust, you know, was renewed and... Thank you. Before I continue, I just want to see if there's any questions from the audience. All right, so that means I'm doing a good job, right? That's right. All right, <laughs> just making sure. All right, so I want you to tell a story. Um, and you, one of the promises in the big book, it, well, there's multiple promises all in the big book, but is um, we won't regret the past nor we'll shut the door on it. And no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Um, and you tell this story when you met one of your sponsees and you were able to like really see those promises being fulfilled in your life. I think you know what I'm talking about. I do. So back in the beginning of this podcast or back in this workshop, you asked me how the shame and the guilt were overcome. Is that the story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's here today. Today, So there was something on my footstep that I said I would never tell anyone, ever. I'm like, my mother does this. Oh, God, I can't say it for the dream. I left our 18-month at home and went to a bar. I was just never going to tell anybody that. And my mother does that, leaves her baby home. Anyway, and so um, I was sitting here, you know, never gonna share that. Sitting here, it was actually at Redwood Circle. And this woman comes in, she's, I was a volunteer at Maggie's, and um, she comes in and she's in the corner and she's sitting there crying. And, you know, the whole, you wouldn't understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. That, <laughs> that we all say, we all think we're unique, you know? <laughs> And, um, and she starts telling the story about how she left her children at home alone. She went to a bar. And I went, well, let me tell you a story. And it's the best feeling when you don't feel alone like that. That's what our stories are for. And I looked at her and I told her the story. And she literally looked at me and said, you drink worse than I do. How did you get sober, man? <laughs> And I'll tell you what, it was the first time I'd ever laughed about that moment in my life. Because it's not funny. And I'm not laughing about it now. Because I'm not going to diminish the fact that it's horrible to do that. But that one story has helped hundreds of women. Not because I tell it, but because other people tell it. Because we don't feel like we are unique. We don't feel like we're alone. We all have stories like that. 
They're not meant for shame and guilt. They are meant to share with another woman so that that is the only reason this woman trusted me. I'm just another blonde chick up here trying to sell you on some steps otherwise. <laughs> but my story is all I've got to build that trust. And unless I tell it, the shame will never be removed. I will always be asking God to remove the shame instead of focusing on another alcoholic and let God do his business in the background. And that's what happened. And it worked. I just love it so much. Okay. So when did you start to notice like the positive change in your mom? Because she had a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps. Um, when did you get to see that transfer into the home life? You know, for our situation, our story, it was, uh, it took a long time because um, immediately again, after she got home from rehab, mom and dad started fighting like crazy. And for about a year and a half, that's all it was. It was just awkward dinners and mom's at another meeting and dad's basically checked out and I'm checked out. And um, it was just really awkward. And then about two years into it, maybe three years into it, um, is when I started to see that change, obviously when uh, she came and spoke to the basketball team. And then the biggest thing was just meeting the people that she was helping. That was, to me, like, okay, she's really starting to, you know, kind of make a U-turn here. She's, she's making an impact on the community and other families that have the same situation as us. And, you know, when I got to swap stories, essentially, with the kids of, of um, some of the women that she was helping, and. It was like, well, oh, my mom did this. Oh, really? Well, my mom did this. Oh, really? Well, you should hear about what my mom did this one time. And um, that really helped to kind of lighten the load because, again, it just felt like you were the only ones going through it until we got to meet other families who had been through the same thing we had. And that was probably the point, probably a year or two into it, where I started to kind of forgive her and try to reestablish that connection. So it took a long time. it was a long, long time. How would you explain the relationship with your mom today and what that's like? Be careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> Here we go. It's, it's really great. Um, I think the fact that we get to joke about all that stuff now helps a ton. You know, she's helped me with a lot of my stuff that I've gone through personally. And, you know, having her as somebody to kind of lean on and, and essentially just lean into is, is something that I really wasn't used to. And so um, it's, it's been great. She's the best mom you could ask for. I mean, she really is the best mom you could ask for. How has recovery, I want you to tell another story, but if you guys listen to the family afterwards, she tells the story about dancing on the table. Um, oh my gosh, so. yes. Remember that when you guys are making fun of me for dancing? Yeah, it's, it's a really cute story, but for yeah. the sake of time, I'm just gonna okay. plug it. Okay, uh, how has recovery changed you as a mother? Oh, I think it's changed everything about me as a mother. I think that I don't try to tell my children what to do as much. I tell them about my perspective, what I would do. I, I don't, it's, it's an interesting thing of, of a woman in recovery. It's like sponsorship. Instead of telling them what they need to do, you tell them what you did. If they want to follow what you did, then that's great. If they don't, that's fine. There's a balance there because you, the 14-year-old, you can't just let them make decisions. You have to be a mother, right? But when they get to be 18 and 21 and 22 and 24, and, you know, I remember one moment uh, not too long ago when Drew came to me and he said, I, I need to talk. And the doctor was in, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And it's those moments where I wouldn't know how to deal with those. I would take it personally or I would try to tell him what to do. And I was I listened. There's so many principles and promises that we get to learn and get to live that have changed not just my DNA, but in doing that, it's changed the way I parent. It's changed my, the way, who I am. And so I think it leads into my family. And, you know, I know I missed probably a decade of my kid's life, but I'm hoping that I've made it up in the way that I've changed, God has changed my life now because I'm a different person, I'm a different mother because of it. I don't try to control for one thing. There's a million different things. Drew probably doesn't agree with that, but anyway, it is definitely maybe a different mother. You gonna say something? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's turned out really well because um, she's so well versed in, in like therapy now. <laughs> Whenever I have an issue and I'm like, oh, mom, I just, I can't, I, something's going on with this. I, I really need help with this. And she's like, well, Drew, you're scared and you need to get over it. I'm like, man, like, you're right. Like, and she didn't say it like that, of course. But, um, you know, sometimes you need to hear that. And I think, you know, again, with all the experience that she has in helping so many people and all this stuff, uh, it's been great for her to, to kind of use that for me and um, the boys and my dad, too. So. so has she made up for it? Yes. <laughs> All right, we're getting to the top of the hour. Um, this has been so beautiful. How many moms in here can relate? All right, that's what I thought. And how many moms are feeling hope? You guys. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So my final question for you, Drew, is what would you want to say to a child who is growing up in an alcoholic home? What is something that you wish somebody would have said to you? Um, don't make it about yourself. That's, that's the biggest thing. At least that's what I took away from it. Um, because again, I was so worried about how it was affecting me and, and not about how she was doing, how she was doing personally and spiritually and mentally and physically. I just didn't care because it had gone on for so long and I didn't understand what alcoholism was. So in my mind, it could have, it, it was as easy as just don't drink. It really was. And she couldn't do that for some reason. I didn't understand why. And, you know, I, I think it was a great lesson in empathy. So my lesson or my advice would be to just try not to make it about yourself and, you know, put yourself in, in her shoes or his shoes and, and, you know, try and help as much as you can, as often as you can and, and be patient. Thank you. And Lisa, what would you want to say to the alcoholic mother who is still suffering? To the alcoholic mother who's still suffering, get educated for one thing. I think that's the primary. Until I got educated on what the disease of alcoholism was, there was no hope for me, period. I could try all day long to go to church more, to become a better person, to be more spiritual, to take pills, which I mean, multitude. <laughs> um, I could try all of those things, but for me, and there's, a, there's several ways um, to get sober and to get into recovery. For me, this is what worked, is the big book. And so first thing that had to happen was I had to understand the disease of alcoholism. It's the only thing I really had to understand, but before anything else was gonna work, I had to know I was gonna die. And it wasn't gonna end well. Like there was no way I was gonna, ever gonna be able to drink normally again. I had to know that in my heart. 
And then from there on out, it was time. It was time and doing the work, taking the action. That's what I would tell an alcoholic mother who's still out there, or even an alcoholic mother who's recovered, who can't get their relationship back with their children. You have to focus on other alcoholics. You have to focus on alcoholic women and stop focusing on your children, on your families, because you gotta let God do that. That's faith. And everything else is just fear. And all fear is, is lack of faith. So that's the biggest thing I did was when I quit focusing on Drew, I quit focusing on the damage, I quit focusing on the, sh the stuff, the shame, that's when um, I started to get hope. Thank you so much. For our listeners in the tech world, I'm gonna put um, the link to the family afterward in the show notes so people can listen to it. For all of you in the audience and who will listen to this in the future. If you have not left a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please do so more people can hear uh, experience, strength, and hope like we just heard from Lisa and Drew. This was such an honor, and I feel extremely blessed to be able to spend my Mother's Day doing this with you guys. Thank you so much. from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.